0: So, this evening, if you were blessed by the children's choir, would you just let them know one more time with a round of applause? I want to thank Brighton as well as the volunteers in order to make that happen. Um, we're talking about investing in the next generation, and when your children are learning scripture and they are singing about the Lord, it is a step in the right direction on that, and I am excited. So years ago, there was a devotional publication entitled Today in the Word, and it ran an article about a well-known public figure. And I'm going to read an excerpt of this article, and I want you to see if you can guess who the person is before I get to the end. Quote, He made free use of the Christian vocabulary. He talked about the blessing of the Almighty as well as the Christian confessions, which would become the pillars of the new government. He assumed the earnestness of a man weighed down by historic responsibility. He handed out pious stories to the press, especially to church papers. He showed his tattered Bible and declared that he drew strength for his great work from it, as scores of pious people welcomed him as a man sent from God. Let me pause. Have you figured it out yet? No. Listen to the last quote. Indeed, Adolf Hitler was a master of outward religiosity with no inward reality. End of quote. Now there's a number of words that come to mind, wow being one of those words, (laughs) as well as the word hypocrisy. We define hypocrisy as pretense, duplicity, being two-faced, having a double standard. We will say things like this, that person says one thing, but they do another. And that's, that's right, that's standard. Hi- hypocrisy is claiming to have moral standards and beliefs to which our behavior does not conform. Now, if we based our lives simply on that definition alone, I think every single person in this room and every person on the planet is guilty of hypocrisy at some level. There is always going to be some part of a gap between our beliefs and our behavior. and A part of that for the Christian is that we are learning and that we are growing and that we desire to be transformed into the character of Christ. And If your life is anything like mine as a Christian, there's a lot of truth that I know in my head that's not quite gotten lived out in my life yet. So there's there's a gap that's there. So if we go on that alone, then there's hypocrisy that develops in all of us. Now it is interesting to me that when someone else says one thing and they do another, they're a hypocrite. When we say one thing and do another, we're still learning. And we kind of have our own double standard, which is a bit ironic based on the context. So if you were to ask someone why it is that they don't go to church if they're currently not attending one, I guarantee you somewhere within the first three responses is going to be, there's too many hypocrites in the church. Hypocrisy has gotten connected to church life. They'll say the church is full of hypocrites. They they will say, I know that guy at work, And he might claim to be a Christian, but his actions do not represent Christ. Or they will say, like, I know that lady, and her friends would be embarrassed to hear what she says about them behind their back. Or somebody might say, I don't claim to be a religious expert, but I'm pretty sure Jesus would not stab his friends in the back. Okay, people can recognize hypocrisy. And guess what? They're right. Church is full of hypocrites. The church constantly has people that are coming in that we have a set of beliefs that we're not quite living up to. I I understand that. But while we're in this subject, let me also say, bars are full of hypocrites. If everyone said everything on their mind, no one would ever get a phone number in a bar. Y'all think about that tonight. Some of you, it's going to be like 10 p.m. and you're going to be like, I got it. You're right. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Bars are full of hypocrites. Country clubs are full of hypocrites. How many people feel the need to keep on appearances because they don't want their friends or those around them to feel like that they are inferior? Business can be full of hypocrites. People say whatever's necessary to get the job And sometimes, they will lie like a rug in order to keep that job. Um, Here it is, here it is. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, every social media account is full of hypocrites. Now listen, I'm a Christian. I think life is good. I I really do. But life cannot be as good as some people make it seem on social media. I'm telling you, they wake up like trolls in the morning They argue with their spouse for about 20 minutes. They gobble down, you know, some Captain Crunch over the kitchen sink. They share several hand gestures with other motorists on the way to work. (laughs) Then they take a selfie with wheatgrass, and they're like, praise God, another perfect morning. (laughs) Okay, whatever. (laughs) We create the image that we want people to see. Hypocrisy is everywhere. We all live somewhere south of our ideals. But what happens when living south of those becomes a tarnish against the name of Christ? What happens when it interferes with the mission of Christ? What happens when our hypocrisy now becomes a stumbling block for others entering into relationship and thriving in that relationship with God? So tonight we're talking about confronting hypocrisy. By the way, I did not share this evening's title in this morning's service because I was hoping people were gonna show back up tonight. And there's also not exactly a great tie-in between come out and enjoy the children's choir and I'm gonna be teaching on confronting hypocrisy this evening. But that's what we're dealing with tonight. It is the next section in our Galatians study. And in the text, the Apostle Paul confronts the Apostle Peter for his hypocritical actions that were causing problems in the church at Antioch. And it's one thing that we find ourselves in one of these texts that seems uncomfortable. It's difficult to sit in it. In fact, it's one of those times where you, you almost feel like two of your spiritual parents are arguing in front of you, and you're like, you all need to settle that, like, in another room you you almost want to get out of the scene fast because it's uncomfortable but part of the reason it's uncomfortable is you can begin to see yourself in some of the part of the story it's one of those areas we need to sit in the text and allow the word to do its work within our hearts so i invite you if you're not already there this evening join me in your bibles in the book of galatians chapter number two We're going to be in verses 11 through 14, and I am speaking this evening on confronting hypocrisy, confronting hypocrisy. Start in verse number 11, and let's keep reading together. But when Cephas, by the way, that's another name for Peter, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, He used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that, they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew Live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews. How is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may your spirit unpack the truths of your word this evening. God, may we receive the message the way you intended it in the text. And Lord, we'll thank you for what you do this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, before we see what the text is telling us to do, we need to first pause and make sure we know what the text is not telling us to do. It is not telling us we need to sit in judgment of every other believer. Nobody is perfect apart from God. God alone is the perfect righteous judge. And if he ever chooses to step down from that position, I'm sure he has your number. So this is not about calling out, everybody around you that you think is not perfect. It's also not about instructing us to stir up trouble or to try to root out hypocrisy within our midst. If every Christian were to walk around pointing out every sin in other believers' lives, first, you would wear your finger out, and second, it would only lead to disunity within the body. Scripture tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. Praise God for that. There's none of us that are perfect. Paul did not confront Peter in the midst of everybody because he was just trying to meddle within his business, but rather he confronted Peter because Peter's actions were leading Christians astray. It was causing disunity within the church, and it was undermining the gospel message itself. It had to be called out. Now, the text also is not giving us a get-out-of-church-free card because now you find biblical evidence that there are hypocrites within the church. We've already discussed the fact there's hypocrites everywhere. Everybody lives somewhere south of their beliefs and their ideas. The church, however, should be a place where imperfect people can repent of their imperfections before a perfect God and find healing and help. So... Why is it important that we confront hypocrisy in the church? Why do we take an entire evening to address this topic as we're studying the Word together? Here is your key truth, and I'm going to share it multiple times tonight. Hypocrisy is a sin of convenience. It's found in anyone. It impacts everyone, and it undercuts the mission of Christ. Hypocrisy is a sin of convenience it's found in anyone it impacts everyone and it undercuts the mission of christ now we're going to address each part of that statement as we get towards the end of the message but right now we need to spend some time unpacking the story that's happening in verses 11 through 14. I always say the same thing. Context is crucial. Context is crucial. You have to go back and understand what was happening in the original setting, original audience, what the original writer was saying for the original purpose. We need to understand that before you cross the interpretational bridge and say, how do I apply this into my life right now? So for us, we need to take a moment and get back into the story. Here's what's happening in verses 11 through 14. Believers in the early church, they shared a common meal that was referred to as the love feast or the agape meal. The people in the congregation would gather together. Each person would bring some food. They would have a meal together. And that particular meal was for the purpose of bringing unity together. It was to create fellowship. It was to create a connectedness. Now, here's just a little pause. That is, Baptists are often made fun of for our potlucks, I think there's a biblical precedent. So while people might make fun of it, I say that's being people of the book. Amen? Amen. That's a side note. So the agape feast was a time for people to be together, to build relationships, and to get to know each other. So for the Christian slave, that might be the one good meal they might have in an entire week. For those who were extremely poor, they were able to eat what they had on that night only because others were helping provide that. For those who were wealthy, it was a way for them to serve the body through what God had entrusted to them. Every person was blessed as these meals were taking place. The meal was for the purpose of bringing unity and community into the early church. Now here's the problem at Antioch. They had a problem with that whole togetherness. Most of the early believers of the church were of Jewish descent. The Jewish customs forbid Jews to do business with Gentiles, to go on journeys with Gentiles, to extend hospitality to Gentiles, or to receive hospitality from Gentiles. And in case you're wondering, a Gentile is somebody who is not Jewish. If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile based on what scripture would say. So because of that separateness, there was such a a disdain, there was such a distance, there was such a division that had been ingrained within culture for such a long period of time, it was hard for some people to overcome that barrier and to sit down and have this meal together. So for some early believers, it was difficult to transition from complete avoidance to complete acceptance. And in Antioch, the sentiment was heightened because it was in a region that was primarily Gentile. There were more Gentile believers there than in most of your other cities in the first century. So when Peter shows up in Antioch, he actually helped a lot of people get over this barrier. He was the perfect guy for the job. This is a guy who basically came out of a Jewish home. He understand the Jewish customs. He was also a guy that was extremely respected as one of the premier apostles. He was a guy that was listened to by both Jewish as well as Gentile believers. He was a perfect guy to help bridge the gap. Also, God had prepared him uniquely back in Acts chapter 10. If you'll remember, with the sheep coming down from heaven, and it had clean and unclean animals on it, God gave him a vision to help him understand how God's bringing the church together as one family. Peter could be a great force to unify the church. And that is exactly what he was when he first got there. He ate with the Gentiles. Verse number 12. The imperfect tense of the verb here, it means that it was an ongoing, continuous, habitual action. He was continually eating with them. He was continually hanging out with them. He was building that relationship. Through his actions, listen, through his actions, he was teaching that Jews and Gentiles are united together in Christ. And all of that was going great until there was a group of Jewish men who claimed to be from James, who caused Peter to stop eating with the Gentiles. Verse number 12, it tells us, he held himself aloof because he feared the party of the circumcision. I want you to let this thought sink in for just a moment. Fear was the motivating factor in his actions, not ignorance. Fear was the motivating part to his actions. It wasn't that Peter didn't know truth. It wasn't that Peter forgot truth. It was that Peter feared the crowd and he found it more convenient, here it is, convenient to acquiesce to their standard instead of standing up for the truth that he knew to be correct. So in verse number 12 is one of those few times that you actually see fear connected with Peter after the resurrection of Christ. Now if you remember Peter's story, Peter was fearless prior to the crucifixion. Peter's the only one of the disciples that got out the boat and walked on water. Peter is that guy who's in the garden who said, I will not forsake you. Talking to Jesus. Peter's the one who grabs a sword and cuts off a dude's ear in the garden trying to defend Christ. I mean, Peter, he he would jump in. Peter, I associate a lot with Peter. I really do. There's sometimes I jump in and I'm like, I probably should not have done that. That was a Peter moment right there. But I, I get the idea of being passionate about something and you want to jump in, you want to help. Peter was fearless. Until he began to see the guards coming. Him being questioned about his association with Jesus. And in that night, he denies Jesus three times out of fear. And it broke him. He goes away weeping. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind as to why Jesus, upon his resurrection, had to say, Go tell the apostles and Peter. That I want to see him. I think he specifically needed to mention Peter's name because Peter might have thought he messed up too bad that Jesus would never want to see him again. Go tell the others and Peter, specifically, and Peter. So then you see a revived Peter in the book of Acts. It's Peter who stands up on the day of Pentecost, it's Peter who preaches, and 3,000 souls are converted. It's Peter who's willing to take a stand and to go to prison. It's Peter who says, I'm willing to lead. That's Peter. Peter is fearless. And now all of a sudden it says in this text, out of fear of the circumcision, he kept himself aloof. Fear was the motivating factor for him, not ignorance. So in verse number 12, fear grips him again. Now it's important for us to also mention that the Judaizers had no authority from the Sanhedrin to arrest or to imprison or to put anyone to death. The worst they could do is harass him and cause some problems for him the same way they were causing problems for the Apostle Paul. At best, we, we have no other part of the story other than what we find here in Scripture. As best we can tell, the fear that grabbed him was fear of either losing his influence our fear of being harassed by a self-righteous group of religious people. Either way you look at it, that's not good. As a result of Peter's actions, his fear, it led to him doing things that did not align with his beliefs. Now, it's one thing if there is hypocrisy in some of your personal beliefs between you and God. If God works that out on a personal level just between you and God, it needs to be worked out. It needs to be something that God deals with. But when it's kept personal between you and God, the damage sometimes is kept close. It's kept personal. But when you're a leader, a leader in the early church, a leader that people were looking to, those areas of hypocrisy now hurt other people, and they hurt them fast. So in verse 13... It says, because of his actions, there's a ripple effect. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. The rest of the Jews, those who were there, they they began to follow his lead. They joined him in his hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away with the hypocrisy. Now, Barnabas, if you'll remember, was the son of encouragement. Barnabas, like you think, like that's a strong believer. Certainly Barnabas is not going to be carried away. Even Barnabas got pulled away with the hypocrisy. The church at Antioch was splitting. But it wasn't splitting over some major doctrinal difference. It was splitting because Peter chose convenience over truth. Instead of standing up for the unity that we have in Christ, he chose to act in a way different than what he believed now scripture is very clear when it comes to God's desire for unity within his church Ephesians chapter 4 verse 5 it tells us there is one body there is one faith there is one baptism there is one Lord there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all there is unity that is spoken of in fact Galatians 3:8, we're going to be getting there in several weeks. It says, "There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. The ground is level at the foot of the cross." Okay, now let's pause here for just a moment. Context is key. Context is key. Context is key. This is one of those texts, Galatians chapter three verse 28 that sometimes believers will use and they pull out of context in order to to defend some positions that are not biblical. Let me tell you what he was not saying here. He was not saying that God does not recognize the differences between men and women. He was not saying that God does not have specific roles for men and women. He's not saying that God does not have a design for marriage and a design for the home. Those things did not change here. What he's saying in this section is that when it comes to a person's worth and their value before God, there is no difference in the sight of God. God does not withhold his graces from men to extend to women or women to extend to men. There is is unity here. God does not look at one and say, because of where you came from, I'm only going to bless you this much. There is unity that you have in the body of Christ. Now, let's take that even deeper. This type of unity means that our financial status does not determine our closeness to God. It means our family heritage did not give us immediate acceptance over somebody else's family heritage. It means that our church service does not make God love us anymore. Our gender does not make God love us any less. Our sin does not hinder us from God's love. Oh, but let's pause here for just a moment. It has not always been that way for Gentiles. Let's get into what Scripture says here. Prior to Christ, the Bible tells us We're all sinners, we're all broken, we're all helpless, we're all needy, without hope, under God's wrath, destined to eternity, separated from God, unless, unless God in his grace and mercy were to step in on our behalf. But because of what Christ has done for us, listen, those who are in Christ, we are now in the beloved, Jews and Gentiles. We are a part of God's family, Jews and Gentiles. We are heirs and joint heirs with Christ, Jews and Gentiles. Because of the cross, Gentiles are no longer to hide in the shadows like unloved stepchildren of God. Christ has given us a seat at the Father's table. That's what grace does. That's why Paul told the believers in Ephesus, but now in Christ Jesus you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall he broke it down so that he himself might make the two into one new man thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross That's the teachings behind this. That's why, in this particular section, when Peter is not living out those truths, Paul calls him out. Called him out in front of the group. Now, when Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles, his actions, he might not have verbalized it, but his actions, let's pause, let's pause. Sometimes you don't have to say things that are hurtful. Your actions are speaking for you. We have to be careful of what we do. Now, I'm not trying to add another weight on top of people. I'm simply wanting people to know. You might say one thing, but if your actions don't back it up, you can be doing just the opposite. Be bringing hurt when you're trying to bring healing. His actions implied that Gentiles were still unclean and they needed to be avoided. That's what his actions were teaching. They were teaching that one group was inferior and another group was superior. The Apostle Paul was going to have none of that. It says he opposed Peter to his face, which, by the way, if you're going to oppose someone, do it to their face. (laughs) Listen. You know in a Baptist church, everybody knows everything anyway. You might as well talk to them face-to-face. It's going to get back to them probably before you can pick up the phone. You might as well go to them as a brother or sister in Christ and tell them to their face. Now, in this case, he called him out in his face. But listen, he called him out in front of everybody. Now, this is different. A lot that you find in scripture is about going one-on-one to your brother, but here's the reason this is different. Peter's actions had now led an entire group of people astray. There's a lot more who are now been brought into this big circle, so as a result of that, he's like, I've got to address it. Otherwise, other people might think that that's okay, and it's not okay. He called him out to his face. Now, Peter, we understand, based on Acts 10, 34, Peter should have known more than anyone that God had brought down those dividing walls. It was Peter who said after that vision given to him, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. That's Peter's words. But when the Judaizers came to Antioch, he showed partiality. Now let's pause here and let's gain some perspective. It's easy for us to sit here 2,000 years later and say, how could he have gotten it so wrong? I would never do something like that. You all know I'm about to set us all up for a a hard moment here. But listen, there are places of hypocrisy within the church today that would rival anything in the first century. There are still churches today where the color of your skin determines if you're invited to the communion table. That still happens right now. There are churches that choose leaders based on their bank accounts. That still happens now. There are still churches that operate under a good old boy system of showing favoritism based on the family heritage. It's still happening right now. So before we try to get the speck out of Peter's eye, we probably got a little bit of work to get the beam out of our own. Now let's go back to our big truth. This is where we started, and I said I was going to divide it down. We're going to set it all up. Here it is. Hypocrisy is a sin of convenience that is found in anyone. It impacts everyone, and it undercuts the mission of Christ. Let's take that first statement hypocrisy is a sin of convenience to be hypocritical means your actions do not align with your beliefs stop there stop there that means you have to have beliefs that means this is not a sin of ignorance your actions are not aligning with your beliefs you know the truth it's just more convenient in that moment to not obey the truth it is a sin of convenience hypocrisy is a sin that is found in anyone Peter is one of the premier apostles. Barnabas is one of the premier first century leaders. These two guys were used of God to help set the world on fire for the cause of Christ. And yet we see in them, in other leaders, hypocrisy that was coming out. It is a sin that can impact anyone. It's also a sin that impacts everyone. If left unchecked, it will spread everywhere. How fast and how far? is determined by the influence of the one who is being hypocritical. The greater the influence, the greater the spread, the faster it's going to be. Eventually, our sin will impact everyone around us. Here's just a statement that I heard from another pastor years ago, and it's one that has proven to be true again and again. Sin never stays where you leave it. It always will take on a life of its own and go further. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it'll cost you more than you're willing to pay. Sin never stays where you leave it. Hypocrisy is a sin that undercuts the mission of God. The mission of God is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. How we live as Christians will either be an influence for good or a deterrent away from the gospel. It's either going to help what we say or it's going to hurt what we say. The claims of Christ are important. The claims of Christ are not, I have certain beliefs that I hold. When somebody claims to be a follower of Christ, they're claiming that he's changed my life. He's saying, he is my life. They're saying it's been a radical transformation. So when our life is not changed, it takes away from the claims of Christ. Hypocrisy is a sin of convenience that is found in anyone, it impacts everyone, and it undercuts the mission of Christ. So how do you apply a message like this? Here's a major point of application. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. I had to say it because I know it was already on your minds. Some of you are thinking, you were saying it. I know it. I could see the wheels turning out there. Yes. You heard that in a Baptist church. Yes. Check yourself. It is far easier for you to hold the mirror of God's word to your own life and to let God address the issues than to have to have one of your brothers or sisters in Christ come to you and call out what you have not been willing to see yourself. The admonishment, I think this is in your notes, is a good word, the admonishment of Christian community should only repeat the correction of the Holy Spirit. The admonishment of Christian community, should only repeat the correction of the Holy Spirit. That is, when a believer is spending time with God, as they should be, asking God to reveal any sin, as they should be, he will point out issues before other people have to get involved. It's far easier for you to do business with God in private than for God to have to bring that out in public and others have to call out that same sin. Other believers should not have to step in, but listen, listen. If we don't ask God to reveal the sin, if we're not asking God to address it and to remove it, that's where the body of Christ is being loving as the body of Christ and coming and saying, I need to share this with you. And even then, it is to be shared in love and it is to be shared in grace. But truth is going to hurt. So here's another way that you can apply this remain teachable. Amen. There is safety and submission to God. Safety in submission to God. Even if you don't see the sin yet, remain teachable and ask God whether or not you're just not seeing it at this point. It might be that somebody confronts you on something that's not biblical. It might be a preference for that other person. If that's the case, it might be the Spirit of God does not bring conviction in your life over that because that was somebody else's preference. That was not God's Word. But remain teachable. Ask God, God, am I missing this? Is this an issue that somehow has slid past me? Remain teachable. When Scripture is clear on a subject, we have to remain teachable and submit to what the Word of God says. Check yourself. Remain teachable check yourself, remain teachable. Hypocrisy is a sin of convenience that is found in anyone. It impacts everyone, and it undercuts the mission of Christ. So we're going to have a final song this evening. In this final song, I'm going to encourage people to be praying through that same thing. God, is there sin in my life that I have not addressed? And second, has my heart remained teachable. So there's going to be a final song. I want you to spend some time, you and God, alone in this. And also, during this song, this will be a time we're about to present some new members here. This will be a song or a time when everybody is singing for those who are going to be presented tonight to go line up on the wall. Pastor John Spencer is going to be over there in just a moment, and we're going to present new members here. But we're going to have a word of prayer, then we're going to go through this time of music, then we're going to present some new members tonight. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that you have given us to know you, the opportunity to study together, the opportunity to enjoy fellowship. God, we ask tonight that your spirit would reign supreme in every part of our life. Would there not be a single crevice of our heart that has been shut off to you? In Jesus' name, amen.